Our sermon today will be taken from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost tumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of the mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me with glory. Receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. This is the word of God. Morning, and my name is Andy Lee, and it is good to be here. Uh, with you. I, I've met Tazar uh, once or twice, and uh, it's always good to meet a fellow church planter. My wife and I, as was mentioned, moved to Hawaii to start a, a church, and uh, not a bad place to start a church, you know. <laughs> it was uh, kind of hard to raise money for the church plant, but I would tell people you can't uh, spell suffering without surfing. And uh, we had a, we look back on it, I guess, Positively, <laughs> although some some days they were quite hard and things seemed a little bit sketchy as with any kind of startup. And at that time we moved there, um, we didn't have a core group and we had to gather people and we just saw God work. And I just didn't really want to encourage you to be thinking about friends that are perhaps open to a new church or coming back to faith, perhaps repats. And it is so important that people in these kind of days and these times have a, a solid faith in, and belief in the gospel. And for all of us, that's, that's so true. 
It will give us meaning. It will give us purpose. There is so much out there that will war against and take away from what we're created to be in terms of human beings. And so the, the gospel restores us and it restores things and restores relationships. And you are part of God's great story. And I just want to encourage you. I know Tazar probably wouldn't say this, but you know, just really encourage Tazar. Pray for him and Tatiana. They're going through a very stressful time and uh, care very much for you and the church plant. And they're just to pray for them and to be encouraging to them and with their new baby, perhaps even letting them go out on a date night. So he wouldn't plug himself like that, but I'll, I can do that. So I invite you to take your Bible or your device and turn to Psalm 73 as was read for us. And as I thought about what to preach here, I thought about an old story. There was a guest pastor who was asked to come to a church, and he didn't know what to preach. He was rather new to filling in the pulpit for a pastor who had been away. So he wrote to his mentor, and he wrote a letter, and some of you remember what those are. And he wrote and said, you know, I'm not quite sure what to do. I've got this opportunity to speak to the church. I don't know the people. What pieces of advice would you give to me? And so he received the letter back, and he opened up the letter, and his mentor said, I would just want to give you two pieces of advice for your speaking opportunity. First of all, speak about God. Secondly, speak about 20 minutes. And so I will shoot for definitely hit number one, and we'll try and have our time together. I had a little bit of fun with with the welcoming team, and they asked, I asked them how long I should speak. They said 30 to 35 minutes, and I told them, Tazar told me one hour. So <laughs> they were so polite, they didn't say anything, <laughs> but their eyes said it all. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to look at the Psalms, and let's go to the first slide here. And the Psalms are, are a very important part of our spirituality and very often very neglected in terms of our study and our understanding as Christians. And the Psalms are songs and expressions of the heart. And depending on your tradition that you're coming from, you may have quite an emphasis on knowledge and theology and neglect cultivating heart and emotions. Uh, can we go to the first slide of, of the presentation, not the text? And it, it is the full range of human emotions. There are 150 psalms. And if you have time later on, you can go to Psalm 88, and it almost sounds like somebody who's clinically depressed. So, you know, you will go and hear different Christians and different churches and different speakers and uh, who will, will say, you know, if you're a Christian, life should be happy and bright and, and everything should work out just fine. But the Psalms actually give us a range of emotions, a range of conditions, and how, what we can actually say to God. Psalm 88 is almost, if you read it, it sounds like somebody's clinically depressed. It ends with an unhappy ending. Psalm 88 says, darkness is my closest friend. That's not the happy life. That's not the prosperous life. It's real life. And so we should go back to the Psalms, and as C.H. Spurgeon has said, the Psalms are a divine medicine chest. 
They guide us into what we can say to God. And as we look at Psalm 73, we need to think about the author. The author is Asaph. He's a worship leader. He's got good theology. He leads God's people, perhaps in the tabernacle choir. So he's a high-profile person. He knows what he's doing. He's been given a position of responsibility, and he writes this psalm. He also wrote Psalms 50 and Psalm 73 through 83. So here's a man who expresses for us, on our behalf, what we can say to God. And so let's, as we've read the psalm, let, before we actually begin the sermon, let me ask for God's help in understanding Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you that you've created us human beings with emotions in a world that is being redeemed and yet also is broken as we are. And so as we walk through this psalm, help us to understand, to see Jesus, to believe the gospel, and to live as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Now, let's say you have a dog. And you put before the dog a plate of gado gado or a pile of gold bars. What do you think the dog would choose? What would you think the dog would choose? The pile of gold or the gado gado? <laughs> uh, well, maybe you need to train your dog a little bit better. <laughs> no, of course, it would choose the gado gado, right? And yet, as human beings, which do we look at as more valuable? The pile of gold, right? Well, somebody would say, if it, as we get closer to noon, someone will say the gado gado, right? <laughs> but it's in the dog's nature to choose something that's valuable to them, right? It's the very nature of, of being a dog that chooses something that we see as less than valuable. It may have utility, it may have function, it may bring pleasure, but it may not be as valuable. And in many ways, what the gospel does, it continually comes back to us and asks us the question, what is valuable to your heart? What do you hold valuable? What would you die for? What would you sacrifice pleasures in life for? What is valuable? And the psalm actually helps us to understand what's going on here. Because we need to ask ourselves day in and day out, what is valuable in my life? Because what is valuable in our heart will guide our actions, will shape our attitudes, and will cause us to live uh, in a way that either pleases God or displeases Him. So what is valuable to your heart? Let's go to the next slide and see how the psalm opens up. First of all, the psalm in verses 1 through 12 begins with good theology. Look at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That is good theology. God is good to Israel. God has been faithful to his people to draw them out from Egypt, to create with them a nation, to bless them with a land. And he's also good to those who are pure in heart. So we have this sense of holiness here, that God is a holy God. And so Asaph starts with great theology. But look at what he has, he follows quickly in verse 2. 
As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He confesses a problem. It's a problem not of an act of sin that we would think of, but an attitude. What, what, is, what is his problem here? He's just saying, look, I'm looking out and I'm seeing the, I became envious. There are arrogant people out in this world and they seem to be getting away. They seem to be prospering. And that's a problem for me, God. And he describes what he sees and he just says, he's, God, there's, there's, there's something troubling my heart. Now, isn't that refreshing that he who can go to God, the God who created the universe, the God who is holy, and say, God, I've got a problem. Some of us who especially come from an Asian culture, it's very hard to disclose problems, right? Everybody puts on a safe face, you know, well, things could be better, but, you know, if you really knew, right? You really knew. And the Bible is written from an Oriental culture. And so what we have here then is he's saying, God, I have a problem here. I am envious of the wicked because they seem to be living a prosperous life. They, they are, are more successful than, than they deserve to be. And so we have what we have here then. He begins with good theology, but he confesses a problem and describes what he sees. Well, keep on going down the verses. What does he see? He says, look, the wicked, in verse 4, have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. You know, these, they're buff, right? They, they, are, they are ripped. They, they seem to have a life that, you know, is just of ease. They don't seem to care. They don't have any problems until they die. God, what's going on here? Look at verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. It's almost as if they're living a charmed life. They seem to be able to buy their way into access or power. They seem to have enough possessions to live a comfortable life. But God, they don't seem to deserve it. Then verse 6 Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. These people are ruthless. They're not just proud people. They're not just you know, showing what they have and how powerful they are and who they know. But they are ruthless. They're violent. And look at their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They seem to be getting away with everything. They're living an indulged life. And then verse 8 and 9, look at, it's not only what they do and what they are, but how they speak. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their strung struts through the earth. These are mean people. These are people who are arrogant not only against other human beings, but against God. They're so proud. And look at verse 11. And finally they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They ridicule God's existence. These people, you can see in much of the news today, 
and our news in fact glorifies these kind of people. I don't know what your social media feed looks like or what your news feed looks like, but maybe you're following certain celebrities or news comes across. And, you know, because they have a name, because they have a show, because they have this and that, people tend to think, wow, they're living a charmed life. And yet, sometimes their life is really a disaster. And they're really taking advantage of people. And so what he goes on to say, these are the wicked always at ease, they increase in riches. It's as if verse 12 is a summary statement of his anxiety. Look, the wicked, they're living a life that everybody wants. They're living a life that is arrogant towards God. Yet, they seem to be getting away with evil. Let's go to the next slide. So what is he saying? What is Asaph saying in these 12 verses? He's saying, it's not fair. Right? God, it's not fair. I am yours. I have good theology. And yet, here are these wicked people who are not only hurtful towards other people, but arrogant towards God. And it's not fair. You ever feel like that? Isn't it human nature to say, well, you know, if, if I'm good, then God should be good to me? If, if it almost borders on superstition, if I have a good quiet time and I've done my Bible study this week, I should get a good parking space at the mall. Right? I deserve it. Isn't that the underlying equation that we like to think, whether we admit it or not? And that's part of human nature. Let's go to the next animation here. I have children. And if I bought a package of UP candy, and it had six pieces, and I had to divide among my, uh, three of my children, so how many, does each, how many pieces does each child get, to be fair? Right? How many? Two, right? So you can imagine. I have a, open up the package, there are six pieces, two for you, two for you, two for you. I can assure you that one of those children will say, thank you. I can also assure you that one of those children will say, I've got two pieces, but they're smaller than her piece. Right? There, there's some, there, some of us have that personality where we're very, very detailed, and we not, not only look at the count of pieces, but how thick is your piece compared to mine? That means you have more candy, and that's not fair. And underlying this is our theological problem, our our problem of human nature is we want God to be fair. We want God to be fair now, and we want God to be fair towards us. But there's something far deeper that's going on here. So... He has said all these things, and he's actually saying it's not fair, but he moves on. So let's see what he says in verses 13 to 15. Look at verses 13 to 15. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What's he saying there? What's he saying there? He said, I'm good. I'm keeping a clean life. 
I've got a good thought life. I don't look at things that aren't helpful to me. I don't listen to music that, that is unhelpful. And I'm, I can proclaim my innocence. And that takes work. And all day long I've been stricken in verse 14 and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying there, he's also stressed, right? Look at, all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. How hard is it for you to turn your back on temptation when everybody else wants to take you there? And who, our, our, own, our own sinful inclinations, perhaps it might be one of our temper or perhaps one of our gossip, and we, we struggle against that. And we really have to work at it because we cultivated a habit. We've had bad examples. And it takes work. And, and what, what Asaph is saying here is, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, look, look, the evil people are getting away with it. I've got nothing. Not only that, he's saying, I'm stressed and alone. He's a leader. And he can't speak in verse 15 he can't share his problems with the people beneath him because that would be demoralizing and crushing of their spirit. So he has to keep it all to himself. And so what Asaph is saying here is, I'm good, but not as blessed as the wicked. I'm also stressed, and I'm alone. So what's he saying? Let's go to the next slide. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to being holy. It's not worth it to live a righteous life because I do all these things that please God, all these things that are hard, all these things that are war against my natural inclination, and yet the wicked seem to prosper. They seem to have an easy life. It's not worth it. I'm stressed. It's sort of like this... Uh, Situation, I, I have a number of friends who play badminton recreationally, but I've also had friends who are athletes, and it's, it's like they have to watch their diet and training, right? And so let's go to the next animation. So if, if they were to go to a buffet, what would they choose, right? They have to choose what's healthy and what keeps them in, in shape. And perhaps they have to eat, you know, uh, keeping in shape, and that means denying themselves certain pleasures and things that they would like. And it's not worth it if you really want to indulge yourself. And so Asaph is moving us through his emotions. It's not fair, and God, it's not worth it. It's not worth the discipline. Have you ever said that to God? Like, you know, God, you know, it's, it's so hard to deny myself and to follow you. And what, what do I get out of it? And yet Asaph is being very genuine and honest to God. Well, look at verses 16 and 17. So what does he do? He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's saying, look, I'm trying to puzzle this out. If the wicked should... Well, God, shouldn't the wicked actually not be prosperous if you're God? And if, if the righteous are living lives of difficulty and struggle to please you, shouldn't they be living a comfortable life? 
I can't, I can't make the equation work. And he admits it's beyond understanding, but what does he do? He goes to worship God. In verse 17, the first part, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Asaph has expressed these deep and raw emotion of it's not fair, it's not worth it, I don't understand. And so what does he do? He doesn't Facebook his problems. He doesn't Instagram, you know, I'm having a bad day. He goes to worship. And what we need to do is understand that as he goes into worship, we will see a turn in this psalm. We will see that there's a turning point, not only in who he is, but who he understands God to be. So let's go at verse 17b to 20, the second half. 17b says, I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. And then 18 and through 20, truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away, utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What he says here is, first of all, God is the all-knowing judge of the wicked. God is the all-knowing judge of the wicked. And the wicked face a terrible, eternal destiny. When he goes to worship, look at verse 17, I discerned their end. He's seeing that God is still in control and God will bring them to account. They may seem to be getting away with something in this life. They may seem to be arrogant towards God and exploiting people and getting away with it, but there is a God who sees. And not only that, but he's a God who will determine their destiny. You set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment. Swept, utterly, swept away utterly by terrors. God will bring them to account. It may not be in Asaph's timing. It may not be in his liking. But God will bring them to account. So next slide then. What is he saying? Well, first of all, he says that God's all-knowing, but he is saying God is just. God's justice may not be on our time, but God is still just. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that even as we live in a world today where the unjust seem to get away with so much for their own selfish ends, that God is still in control, that God will bring all things to account, and God is still God. And so he, in worship, has reset himself in understanding what God's character is like, that God is just. Now that he's reset, his understanding of God is, Let's look at what he does, verses 21 to 28. 
It's almost a, a confession, if you will. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He confesses to God that his emotions were raw. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a child have a tantrum in the mall. They are just wailing beyond control. It's not a pretty sight. In fact, your parents probably said, see, don't be like that, right? Can you, can you imagine? This is what Asaph confesses to God. He said, look, when, when I try to think about all these things, when I try to put the equation together that my righteousness should result in good things coming from you, God, my heart was raw, and I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And yet he's saying, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm unpleasant, you are still present with me. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. He doesn't just say, look, you go have your tantrum and you go figure it out and be by yourself and I'm done with you. But God is still holding him close. And then verse 23, nevertheless, even when I'm a brutish uh, a beast toward you, Verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. See, what he's saying here is, you haven't given up on me. You haven't given up on me now, and you will keep me safe all the way to the end. That's how lavish and unreasonable God's love is. And you guide me with your counsel. And then verse 25, he comes back and is resetting, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. He's saying, look, no prosperity, no power, and no position can displace you being at the center of my love. My flesh and my heart may fail, in verse 26, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, he shifted from the temporal to the eternal. He was looking at the wicked in the temporal sense, the, the here and now. Look, they're getting away with it. They're rich, they're fat, they're, they're, they're able to be arrogant and get away with it. And now his whole mind has shifted. He sees the eternal because he's gone to worship. And he declares that his heart is captivated by God himself. And look at verse 28. It's almost a summary. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Good. Next slide. So what is he saying? He's saying, God is faithful all the way to the end. And he can testify to that. Some of us have been abandoned. Some of us have been betrayed. And on a human level, that's very sad and can be deeply hurtful and sorrowful and have long-lasting effects. But the gospel says, God is always faithful. He does not give up on us. And we look to the son, his son, Jesus Christ, that we can be know that we're loved because of what Jesus has done for us.
Well, let's go to the next slide. And how do we think about this passage? First of all, the character of God. This passage challenges us to think about the character of God. God is not fair. Okay? God is not fair as we think about it. God does not take our righteousness and say, well, you know, Andy's done better this week, and, well, compared to last week, you know, he seems to be making an improvement, but, oh, you know, I can see what's coming for next week. It's going to be a disaster. I'm going to not give him a parking space in the mall. Our natural inclination is we want God to be fair, but God is God. He's perfectly just, he's merciful, and he's absolutely faithful. He's perfectly just, he's merciful, and absolutely faithful. As we said in our confession of sin, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I mean, if everybody knew what we keep secret, it would be very unpleasant. And yet here is God who continually pursues and keeps close to his heart his children. So the first thing that we think about is the character of God. Secondly, human nature. Can we go to the next? Uh, no, no, not the next slide, the next animation. Or next, number two? Does it go? Okay. <coughs> Well, number two, let's, let's, uh, let, number two is human nature, that we all live under God's judgment. Apart from the mercy of God, no, no, go back, go back, not, not this, okay. All right, so it didn't come through. Human nature, we all live under God's judgment. God is God. He's a holy God. And we all live under God's judgment. Apart from his mercy, we are judged as sinners, subjects, objects of God's wrath. But we also, in our human nature, desire to see cause and effect. That's works righteousness. That's works righteousness. We are actually saying, I am self-righteous, and therefore I deserve earthly blessing. Because I am good, God, pay attention and give me what I deserve. That's our human nature. Self-righteousness we expect earthly blessing. But the Bible corrects that, doesn't it? Thirdly, we need to think about, okay, here we are. Who never complained and was absolutely faithful to God? Who with all purposeful justification could have said, it's not fair, it's not worth it? Jesus, right? Jesus could have said, look, it's not fair, it's not worth it, but he did so. He didn't do that because he, he lived a life that wanted to please God. He lived a life of perfect obedience, not only in action, but attitudes and motivation. So this gospel actually comes right out of the psalm here. As we look at how messy our hearts are, we say, wow, look how beautiful Jesus' heart is. He never complained. And he did what? God was, he lived in a messy world, he lived with messy people, but he put his faith absolutely and completely in God. And verse uh, number four here, if you, you go back to verse one, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's got knowledge there, he's got good theology, but at verse 25, what does it say? Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. 
true knowledge has blossomed into true love for God. God is no longer just an abstract theological construct and truth and, you know, that, well, God is good. Yeah, God is just. Rather, at verse 25, he's now said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. If you, your sweetheart wrote that to you, you'd say, wow, they love me, right? And so we can take away that true knowledge can blossom to true love for God from a spiritual struggle. God can redeem our spiritual struggles. And we can end up loving God deeper and more, more purely through a spiritual struggle. So how do we apply this? How do we apply First of all, for Christians here, let me give you a few things. First of all, spiritual struggle, it's a sign of spiritual life. It's a sign of spiritual life. Go back to that choice that the dog made. You know, I mean, because of its nature, it didn't have to struggle and say, do I choose the gado gado or do I choose the gold? Right? No question. By its nature, it went to the gado gado. When you and I struggle about what is good and what pleases God versus what is selfish, and self-serving, and self-righteous. That's good, because we're struggling. That says we've got new life within us. God's truth is beginning to transform our affections, and our will, and our understanding of what's important. And for us, as Christians too, self-righteousness is one of the greatest challenges. I don't know how many times you can say, well, to God, you know, God, I sacrifice so much for this church. I sacrifice my time. I sacrifice my money. God, you don't know what it costs me. That's our human nature. And God will say, look at what it costs me, my son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. Secondly, for Christians, the gospel brings contentment and rest. Contentment and rest. The gospel centers our heart and says, you are loved with an everlasting love that will not quit no matter how distressed you are. Comparison brings self-centeredness, though. And that's one of the dangers now in, with social media. Because as you are influenced by what you see on Facebook, you know, those, those lives are curated lives. Those are curated lives. I don't know how many people on Facebook or whatever social media you use say, well, I've just had a really bad day with my significant other. Or I just overate the leftover cake. Nobody says that. Those are curated lives. And when you look at the lives of celebrities and what the world says is, is the ideal, you have to be careful because it brings self-centeredness and say, why don't I have that? Thirdly, this side of heaven, the seeds of the wicked lie within our own hearts. Who could not hear, who here could not be wicked in terms of pride? Who here could not want to say, God, get out of my life? Who here could not say, well, I like you because I can use your name or your position or what you can give for me? Those are the seeds of the wicked and they lie within our hearts. So it comes a, brings us back to God's grace alone that saves and sanctifies, not our righteousness. 
Next slide. How do we apply if we're not Christians or considering the Christian faith? First of all, the reality of living the Christian life is real life. Christian life, sometimes you'll see in popular literature or media, will say Christian, Christianity gives you a nice life. Well, the reality is life is messy. And Christianity allows you the freedom to struggle without saying, I've got to pretend before God. And then secondly, for those who are considering the Christian faith, the question for you is, what do you love and what does that love cost you? What do you love and what does that love cost you? And the free gift of the gospel says, you can love God and it costs you nothing. It costs God everything. So this is Psalm 73. It's a beautiful roadmap, if you will, of spirituality, of God reconstructing, of helping us with our emotions, of living in a world that is truly real. So how do we conclude? Let's go to the next slide. As we look at our hearts, we have two options. Next, We can look at the world and interpret what the cross looks like, what the gospel looks like. Or, next, we can look at the cross first and then see what the world is actually like. And this is so important, because if we get it backwards, if we look at the world and say, God must be like this, we've got the wrong gospel. We actually need to say, look at what God has done, how just and loving and merciful he is, and then look at the world in that lens. But so often, very naturally, we want to flip it around and say, I look at the world and say, God must be like this, when God is actually all loving and in control, just and merciful and desiring of us to love him. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for Asaph and for the record of a man who has gone through spiritual struggle. I pray for those here who are struggling spiritually, that you would give them great comfort and challenge through this, that they would find even today a time of worship to see that you are still God and that you still love them as expressed in Jesus Christ. We pray that as we go out from here too, we can live with confidence that God is in control and bring people to live true life, live as broken people in a broken world, redeemed and longing for a beautiful world to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.